0: This show is part of the Electric Agora
1: network of podcasts. Hi, and welcome to the Learning and Forgetting podcast. It's part of Electric Agora podcast network and theelectricagora.com. On today's show, I talk with a philosopher named Robert Gressis, and we're going to cross list this podcast on the Learning and Forgetting podcast, but also on the Sophia podcast, which is also part of Electric Agora, Robert sat down and talked to me about an article that I had written for the Electric Agora called Against the Grade Economy. So we talk about why I'm against the idea of what I call the grade economy in schools, which is students do a particular thing and you give them a particular grade for that thing. In some ways, it's a good system or maybe it's a good enough system. In other ways, I think the system has a lot of key flaws. And Robert talked to me because he read the article and it connected with some things that he had been thinking about in terms of his own teaching practice. He's a philosophy professor at California State Northridge. So we talk about a lot of things in this interview. We talk about, of course, why I'm against the great economy, his agreements, and maybe pushbacks against that case. We talk about our own learning experiences in school and whether our learning experiences have shaped our own positions and experiences in terms of grading and higher education. We talk about the work of Brian Kaplan, particularly a book called against education where Dr. Kaplan makes a case. That's not unrelated to the case that I make, where he argues that education, both primary secondary and higher education is more about signaling and getting a diploma than it is about per se, the learning that goes on. And the way my case relates to that, is that i think that grading is not so productive for learning and really has anything anything to do with signaling um, that grading is really about showing that you can jump through hoops and it's kind of detrimental to the learning process anyway we talk about all of these things so i hope that you enjoy this episode
0: My name is robert Cressus. i am the co-host along with dan kaufman of sophia which is part of the meaning of life network and i'm a professor of philosophy at california state university northridge today my guest is kevin curry knight kevin tell us about yourself
1: oh robert thanks for thanks for having me on Um, yeah i've been on sophie i think this is my third appearance so some folks may be a little bit familiar at this point but um yeah i am a teaching associate professor Mm -hmm. in east carolina university's college of education uh, there I do a lot in philosophy of education, history of education, sociology of education, uh, stuff like that. I have um, one academic book, a second, we'll see, hoping hoping a contract comes in for that soon.
0: So this is the part of the show where we do small talk. Yeah. So let us do small talk. So Kevin, what is your greatest fear?
1: Wow. Um, I would say <laughs> I'm generally pretty fearless. Uh, really? Oh God. I uh, see, I have a I... totally different reaction. If somebody
0: asked me that question, I would say, God, where do I begin? Where do I start? There's there's so many. Like one of my fears is that I will hurt the feelings of one of the many fears I have by not ranking at number one. By not
1: ranking at number one. Yeah, that's right. Right. I mean, I'm thinking like I don't want to exclude the most important fear. It's like giving like a, a Grammy speech. You don't want to like exclude yeah. the person that that so yeah, I, I guess. I mean, if I'm being honest, I don't want to be too pessimistic about it, but if oh, I'm no, being honest, be honest. <laughs> well, I, fear if, honesty. I, I will be honest. Oh no. God. It, do you have a fear of honesty? You
0: know, the fact that I have to think is already quite telling. <laughs> um, yes. I do have a fear of honesty in many situations. Yeah. Because, uh, because often it's quite unwanted.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I mean, my fear at the moment is that for various reasons, um, mm-hmm the university is potentially in, in, in a bad way. Um, oh, the, the, the university, not universities, Carolina, universities in general, but, in general. Yeah, just universities kind of in general for so you know, several reasons, like, COVID actually, is like just, you know, uh, COVID is really taking a hit on a lot of university budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a non-tenure track professor by choice. So I want to be a teaching professor, but obviously that comes with, uh, you know, potential insecurities in certain ways. Um, So I'm not completely fearful of it, but uh, it is in my head. Well, this actually relates
0: to the topic of your essay that we're gonna be talking about. Because I remember once saying on a Facebook thread, something like Moody's keeps on predicting that about half of the universities in America will close by 2030, but I don't know why they're that optimistic, which is a little joke. And the joke being that it would be quite a good thing for half the universities in America to close because of how effed up the whole university system is.
1: Yeah. And so
0: um, now do I really believe that? Well, I have some, I don't know if I really believe it, but I don't necessarily not believe it either.
1: Right, like you wouldn't be surprised if something like that came to pass and materialized. No, no, no,
0: sorry. What I mean to say is it might, uh, do I believe it it would be a good thing if it came to pass? Oh, right, right, right. And I think maybe, maybe.
1: Well, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I have a self interest.
0: Yeah, ignoring that.
1: Right. But there's also a, a part of me that uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Clay Christensen's disruptive innovation model. Somewhat uh, familiar. Um, I know he died recently. He died this past year. Yeah. yeah. Um, but one of, the, one of the, the areas, the industries that he used as, as um, an illustration of that model literally was higher education. I know. And what I'm seeing from universities is, like, let's take what Clay Christensen's warnings were and use it as a playbook for how we're going to proceed.
0: They um, read uh, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. <laughs> so they, they were like, I want two business gurus meeting in the middle. Right. So, so, yeah, we can talk about how universities are making mistakes. But first, let's talk yeah, about an abiding yeah. trait of universities, which is what you call the grading economy. Uh, So tell us about the grading economy.
1: Yeah, um, by the grade economy, and it's not just universities, this is true of K-12 education in general, grades are a staple. Mm -hmm. Um, I call it the grade economy. And the reason I did that in this essay is because every semester towards the end of the semester, I'm sure every teacher who's listening, every professor who's listening recognizes this. Towards the end of the semester, it becomes glaringly obvious that everything you as a professor and everything students as students did and that's just a slight exaggeration comes down to the giving and receiving of grades. Mm -hmm. So I'm like the employer who says, here's the work you need to do here. are The standards you need to meet in order to get this payment. And the payment is a grade and students are essentially like the workers who like, okay, that I will meet that standard or I'll come close to meeting it. And then if you short them a grade, it's sort of like shorting them money and, and they would do what, anyone would do if they were shorted money they would come and talk to you about it and and petition to you and uh stuff like that and you know like towards the end of the semester uh, most every student email that you get if i asked you beforehand what that email is going to be about and it's the last week of the semester or it's the week that grades are due right you can probably predict what that email is going to be about it's going to be something about grades um and I wrote the essay and I've wanted to write this essay for probably two years now, because at the end of every semester, I have that same experience um, of, wow, this really does come down to the grade. And if we didn't have grades to give and receive, this whole thing wouldn't work. Not, none of this would work. Mm-hmm. We are held together as at least the teaching side of the university, or again, K-12 as well, by this great economy. And what troubles me about that is that I'm in a unique position as a philosopher and historian of education who has has looked at research on on grades, what we know about them as motivators, what we know about how well they measure learning, what they know what we know about the practice of grading in general, on influencing learning. And the data is pretty negative. Um, it's not all completely negative, but the best you can say is it's pretty neutral. Uh, it's either neutral to negative. Yeah. So I know this. On one hand, here's what the research says about this, uh, and then on the other, I'm trapped in, trapped. Uh, that sounds fatalistic. Um, I'm part of a system that trades on grades and needs grades to function. And as a professor in that system, I'm like the employer in a monetary system. I need to pay workers. Yeah. If you don't pay, you don't you don't get. <clears throat> So let me see if i can summarize
0: for a bit so far what you've said so basically there's a thing that students want from you the professor and naively what one might say they want is knowledge or skills learning that kind of thing but as a matter of fact what they want is a grade the higher the better and what you can give them is a grade so you have this kind of economy where you could see students as buyers of grades and you could see professors as sellers of grades or the reverse. You could see, uh, you, it depends on how you think about it, but the main thing is that students are trying to do things to get what you're giving. And so in order to get that grade, they'll do a lot of different things. And depend, depending on how easy or how hard it is to get the grade, they'll do more or less stuff by and large, but they're res- responding rationally to this incentive that this is the thing you want. And you think this is unfortunate, because, as a matter of fact, a system in which we give grades uh, negatively
1: influences something. Learning outcomes, would you say, or other stuff? Yeah, uh, learning outcomes is is the is the big one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so 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 it's like not entirely, yeah, yeah. Well, I was just gonna say, naively or not
0: naively, but I think historically speaking, grades were justified on a couple of bases. One is that grades would motivate students to try to do the learning. And two, uh, grades are good signals, good signs of what students have learned. So you know that if a student got a grade in differential equations class, they know differential equations well. They got a B, they know it less well, but pretty well, they got a C kind of well, and you know, so on and so forth. So basically, this is how you know how good somebody is through the grades and the students want to be good so they'll work really hard to become good and then everything will work itself out and also when you have so many students you can't give very detailed information about each student so you have to give very succinct information to large numbers of students and you have to have this system because you can't have the number of teachers you'd need to give detailed information about each student So that's why we have grades and they're a good thing. And you say, wait a second, actually, there's some negative things about grades.
1: Yeah. And they don't do a lot of the things they're supposed to do, or at least not in a way that produces the kind of learning that I think we as professors and teachers generally want to see. Yeah. Um, So actually, historically, it's a bit different than you describe. Okay. It's actually worse than you describe. So historically at least in the US but I believe also in the European nations, Prussia, especially that started using a grading system. It was primarily for the sake of efficiency. So you mentioned that third reason, like you can't just give detailed feedback to every student if you have however many students. So that was kind of part of it. Another part of it was we wanted to make sure that as schools got larger with more students Uh, we had a way of measuring students or accounting for student progress in a way that was or looked objective. So the way it was, at least in K-12 schools, before we started using grades, was quite literally, um, are you familiar with the the phrase, toe the line?
0: I'm familiar with that phrase. That phrase. I, I've never done a deep dive into toe the line, what it means, the like hip- I did with the phrase flotsam and jetsam. I, right. I now know the difference between flotsam and jetsam, if you ever want to know.
1: I, we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the history of the, of the word toe the line referred to there was a line in those one room schoolhouses uh, near the teacher's desk. And what would happen is the teacher would assign like, okay, learn this lesson. And by learn it, it was like, take this book and memorize it. It was pretty bad pedagogy. But, and the student would do that and say, okay, I'm ready to recite my lesson. Mm-hmm. And like, that's what the, where the term recitation comes from. Like uh, for exams, you, you, you're reciting. So the teacher would call you forward and you would toe the line. You would kind of put your toe like on, on that line. And you would recite the lesson and the teacher would say, okay, that's good enough. You can go on to the, to the next one. And as you can imagine, that's not a very objective or objective seeming way to do it because the teacher could have favorites. A teacher, it it could be a difference between a good day and a bad day for a teacher, um, all sorts of things. It's not very objective. Grading At least gave the appearance of being objective. Now, whether grades are actually objective, I think there's good reasons to think they're, they're not, Terribly objective. Yeah. Um, So it was really about efficiency. How can teachers give feedback in the most efficient way to the most students? How can we do this thing that looks objective so that we can achieve the kind of scale? You know, like what with scale comes objectivity. When restaurants grow larger, you write your recipes down so that they're objective. When schools get larger, you figure out some objective way to measure. Uh, and then once they started doing separate classes for separate subjects and students going from one class to the next, you would need to have a standard to say, okay, you need to get like a, a B in this class in order to go to like Spanish two or whatever, you know, art two or whatever that was. So it's kind of a brief, simple, a simplified history of kind of what grading looked like. So you mentioned the other things that we think about grading. It's like an incentive for students that, really was not talked about by reformers who wanted to see grades in schools. That wasn't something that, that they talked about, hey guys, it would be a good idea to grade because it would incentivize students. That's kind of something that was like an undiscovered benefit, if you will. Well, now that we have these, we realize that students are really shooting for the grade and isn't that great? We can kind of induce that sense of of competition.
0: Okay, so so then... The thought is that the reason grades aren't good to improve learning outcomes, one thing you mentioned is that grades appear objective, but they aren't, that's right. right? So if somebody said, how good is this restaurant? And I said, it's really good, that's not objective. But if they say, how good is this restaurant? And I say, it's 4.32 stars. They're like, oh, now I know something. Now I know right. a fact,
1: right? right? And like so, four point three two stars may be very different than someone else's. You may be looking at the decor where the other person's not. They may have gotten uh, one dish, you may have gotten another dish. It's there's a lot of things that could go into that. So it gives the appearance of objectivity, right? But the inter-rater reliability, I guess that would be the term you'd use, probably isn't going to be that high. So so let's t- let's think about the the sense in which grades might appear objective but
0: aren't objective in two ways. So first of all. <coughs> You're teaching Introduction to Philosophy. I'm teaching Introduction to Philosophy. I give a student an A. If that student had gone to your class, maybe that student would have gotten a B, right? It could be that my A is easier to get than your A, right? In which case, even though the student uh, knows a student got an A, it's still the case that that doesn't tell you what it would tell you if, if Kevin gave an A. So as you said, we're not all on the same page about what standards we use. Second of all, and this is something you haven't said, but it's something I've read before. Most professors are not themselves aware of the standards they use. Like if you ask a professor, how do you determine whether or not a paper deserves an A or a B or a C, they'll often say something like, I know it when I see it, right? They'll read the paper, they'll get this kind of feeling and they'll, they'll say, this feels like an A. Actually, I can tell you from experience, it might even be more specific than that. This feels like a 92 or a 93, right? but not a 95. It's not a 95, right. and it's not a 90. I know it's yeah. a 92 to a 93. Yeah. And so it'd be interesting if you know we could figure out a way to s- solve that problem, it might not be a problem, but there's at least two senses in which grades don't necessarily tell you uh, important stuff, right? Yeah. Inter-rater reliability isn't there and even intra-rater reliability is not entirely clear.
1: Yeah, well, there's a third way as well. Um, if you're looking at whether grades measure learning and that's what they measure, yeah. I would ask you things like when you have students write papers, do you take off points if it's past a due date? Are you asking me you personally? take off points if there's grammatical errors? Mm-hmm. Do you take off points if they didn't hit five citations like you said in your rubric, but only did two? Mm-hmm. And most professors would say to one of those, yes, or, or more than one, yes, I take off points. Well, there's no reason... I can think of why turning something in past a due date indicates bad learning. It indicates untimely learning and we use due dates for mostly our benefit. It's it's efficient. We know what our workflow is gonna be because we know papers are gonna come in on this date. But if someone turned in a paper a week after the due date and it was a spectacular paper and someone else turned in a, a paper on the due date and it was it was decent. The person who turned in the decent paper on time is more likely going to get a higher grade than the person who turned in an amazing paper a week after the due date or grammatical errors. But unless you're teaching grammar, there's no good reason why knowing where to put the commas indicates whether you've learned the philosophy well enough. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of things about grades. And of course there's course grades, which introduce a whole different thing. A lot of course grades put in points For mastery learning, so like tests and quizzes, and that can measure learning, but they'll also put in points for things like class participation, and then they'll put in points for attendance. Attendance doesn't tell you about learning. I mean, you could make a long argument about why attendance is a really soft proxy for learning, but it's a really soft proxy for learning. So the third way is that a lot of the standards we use for grading, just naturally, I think most of us use, aren't really good indicators of learning at all. Uh, they're indicators of other things, but not learning. So let's let's stop there for a second. There, this this makes me think
0: as well of, of another way in which grades are misleading, which is that imagine you make a molecule-for-molecule molecule duplicate of me, and you have that me grade one section of intro 150, and, and this me grade a different section of intro 150. And we can even make it so that they're at the same time of day with molecule-for-molecule molecule duplicates of all the students, right? um not only of course could there be different experiences in those classrooms that lead to different learning outcomes and stuff but the most important thing is what if one of the me says what i'm going to give an a on is creativity Mm -hmm. and the other me says i'm going to give a grade for rigor so we're still equally tough graders but we're grading on different things so my a means one thing in the rigor class and it means it's completely different thing in the creativity class and now ramify that across not only different members in the same department across different departments, across different colleges, across different universities, like is an A in an engineering class at UCLA? Does that tell you as anything about getting an A in a drama class at Northwestern?
1: Right, I mean, whoever, whoever receives that transcript and looks at it doesn't really know that much other than that the person was a rule follower
0: mm-hmm.
1: and was able to successfully guess what it was the teacher wanted or the teacher cared about or whatever that was but uh, so ideally that problem of iterator reliability is solved by rubrics sure familiar rubrics. with it's oh like yeah, I use rubrics word. it's like the buzzword yeah so you know um, I'm actually on a committee right now that's doing uh, like trying to test rubrics for iterator reliability because for accreditation purposes yes yeah.
0: I'm curious what you've been then, finding.
1: Well, I, I've told the committee from day one and I've told the people who wanted me to be on the committee that I don't really buy into the objective from from the jump. I don't buy into it mm-hmm. uh, because they think rubrics can be objective and I don't think rubrics can be objective. I think rubrics could, if you design them really well and you have the right professors, you could get a decent iterator reliability, but that's not objective. That's just because you have similar people who are grading them. So the problem with, there's two problems with rubrics in terms of solving the objectivity problem. The first is that just about every rubric item is going to have subjective terminology in it. Uh, so the, the student has made uh, sufficient answers to, um, to three uh, objections. Well, what is the word sufficient? What does that mean? How are you gonna objectify that? Right, uh, and basically every rubric item has something like that. And the rubric items that don't are usually arbitrary at some point. So, so and so will include five citations in their paper. Well, why five? Can't can a good paper be done with three? Like you, I could imagine a great paper being done with three citations. Um, I could imagine a really bad paper being done with five citations. What counts as a good citation? I mean, if they just put a newspaper article in there, is that? how am I to determine whether that's a legitimate citation to meet the standard? So again, you're just, um, you can achieve good inter-rater reliability and inter-subjectivity with rubrics, but I don't think you can achieve objectivity. So let's stop for a second.
0: I mean, I've done um, norming, the way they call norming sessions Mm -hmm. where a bunch of us grade a bunch of papers according to the same rubric. And then, let's say the rubric goes from zero to four. If, if there's ever two or more points difference between somebody's score, we have a discussion about it. And then we often discover, and that happens a fair bit of the time. It doesn't happen maybe as much as you might think, not you, Kevin, but one might right. think. But, but, but um, it, and that's interesting that it doesn't happen more often.
1: Yeah.
0: But when it does happen, you know, it's quite revealing about the standards you use and about, you know, you were, you were trying to think of an, an example of an, of an item on a rubric. One that we have in our rubric is the student has written a clear, you know, clear thesis, right? Mm-hmm. That thesis is plausible, right? Mm-hmm. That thesis is defended with rigorous arguments, right? right. These right. kinds of things where certainly whether the thesis is clear is going to differ from person to person, but plausibility, don't even get me started, right? right? And... Um, and rigorous arguments, again, same kinds of disagreements. Right. But then you keep on talking about it's not an objective measure. What's an objective measure mean? What, what is an objective measure of somebody's, um, how much they've learned in any setting, whether it's academic or musical or yeah. athletic or in a business? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um... That's an interesting question because I generally don't believe uh, in that sort of objectivity. Uh, so then, if there's no objectivity, is it a
0: problem that there's not objectivity?
1: It's a problem if you think there's objectivity and there's not objectivity.
0: Okay. On a second, I had a hold on. For some reason, my can you hear me? Say something. Uh, shoot, it's still my my speakers. My AirPods went on even though they're they're off. Okay, I'm going to have to put them in. <laughs> Sorry. Hold on a second, sorry, hold on a second. It just connected to my... Okay,
1: now yeah, I can hear you. Um, I mean, it's a problem if you think that objectivity is what you're getting when you're not necessarily getting objectivity. Um, I'm fine with saying that rubrics are good for kind of ensuring a more intersubjective agreement, like tightening up the language to the rubric is sort of like making a Supreme Court justice write an opinion that justifies how it how they interpreted the law it's not objective it doesn't make the the judgment objective but it does make it so that it's transparent mm-hmm. and it makes it so that they do have to kind of anticipate well if you know with this rubric in hand or the fact that i have to write an opinion means i have to put some good thought into justifying why i'm giving this grade so i mean that very act is going to make it a better uh more reliable in terms of iterator reliability, but I, it, it's not objectivity that you're yeah. getting at point.
0: So, point. So here's, I think the best one could do as a grader, you articulate for yourself your own standards. Yeah. What am I trying to assess my students on? What do I want them to learn from my course? Or at least if not, what do I want them to learn? What do I want them to show me evidence of excellence in? Yeah. And then, you you know, you make your list of things. Well, I want them to know these things, right? I want them to know Descartes' argument for substance dualism. I want them to know Ryle's response, that kind of stuff. And in order to assess that, I'm going to have them write an essay where they have to articulate what Descartes' argument is, what Ryle's response is. I'm going to grade it according to this rubric. And so if you get an A in my class, it means I think you have achieved these goals. You have displayed excellence in these ways. And then, you know, if somebody asks me, you know, some employer says, hey, Kevin got an A from you. Uh, what does that mean? Then I could just look at my handy dandy rubric. I could look at my syllabus and I could say, you read it and now you'll know. Or I can just summarize yeah. it for you, whatever. Yeah. That right. might be the best we can do.
1: Right. There, well, there's, there's uh, uh, what I generally like to say to, to folks is that rubrics don't achieve objectivity, but they achieve transparency and potentially fairness. Mm hmm because now you're grading everyone across the same standard and it's transparent for the reasons you just said. I can disclose to you in the same way that, again, the Supreme Court justice writing an opinion ensures transparency. Doesn't ensure objectivity, but it does ensure transparency. I mean, it occurs to me that, that you could do, I mean, objectivity is probably achievable on certain things that, that learning it would result in successful practice and this, the measure of objectivity is successful practice. If you have to solve a math equation and solving it correctly means you can do a particular task and the only way to do that task is solving it correctly, if you solve it correctly, that's a pretty good test of, of uh, what we would call objectivity. Yeah, and this leads to what you and your article called, I think, Goodhart's Law, is that right? Yeah, Law? yeah Goodhart's Law. Um, Campbell, it's also called Campbell's Law. Yeah, screw I Campbell. Believe, I believe that Goodhart was an economist and Campbell was some sort of social scientist, maybe a sociologist. And if uh, Goodhart essentially discovered through, uh, I believe it was a study of GDP and how nations can kind of fudge their GDP numbers, mm-hmm. he created a law that says basically a measure that you use as a target loses its force as a measure the more it becomes a target so that's very abstract yeah it is so let's bring it let's bring it down um again i i'm pretty sure that Goodhart was studying gdp and uh gdp kind of the world over has been an indicator of a a country's economic health
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it's like a measure So if you have a a high GDP, it's assumed that you're in good health economically. If you have a a low GDP, it's assumed you're not. Well, at some point, nations realize that it's pretty good to be judged as being in good health. So my God, we better make sure our GDP is great. Well, it turns out that there are actually ways to kind of game that system. You can invest money you don't have via debt into public works. Yeah, Uh, That's going to make your GDP look spectacular, but there's really nothing behind it. Um, you know, you can, you can find ways to kind of do creative accounting to me. So, so the idea is that the measure, which was GDP became a target. And once it became a target, it really wasn't a great measure anymore because it didn't really measure anything other than how countries did it trying to hit that target. And it turns out there are ways to hit that target that had nothing to do with what it ostensibly measured.
0: Good. So when it comes to grading, what that means is, After you have grades, after some time when you have grades, what happens is that rather than grades being the measure of how much learning has happened, they become the target that the student is aiming at. So if you say something like to get an, I mean, I could say to get an A in my class, you have to show that you've learned a lot. And then, you know, but, but the problem is, is that how do you do that? And then I'm going to have to say, well, to show that you've learned a lot, you have to get a 90% or higher on this multiple choice test. Right? And then you, you try to just basically get a 90% or higher on the multiple choice test without really caring if you've learned, right? Cause that's the measure I'm using to see whether you've learned and that wouldn't yeah, be a there, great measure. Yeah.
1: And, and there are ways to, to do that. Um, you know, like the whole idea of cram and dump, the whole idea of students cramming before a test. Yeah. So that like, I've, I've, I've known teachers who've said students had questions about the material but they came to me before the test and they said i I didn't want to get the answer too soon before the test
0: because I forget it yeah. so it's
1: like fresh in my brain mm-hmm. um, you know that's not ideal for learning is 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 doing something like that is great for a great outcome yeah it's not necessarily good for learning. I mean it, another way to do it is um, if you want them to learn a lot in your class, presumably you don't particularly care whether they learn more about this philosopher than this philosopher, or like this thing was interesting in class, I'm gonna go learn about that, but that's what's gonna be on the test. So like, you know, the the question that professors get a lot is, is this gonna be on the test, right? Yeah, I don't don't mind that question. they They could find that thing fascinating. But when they ask if it's gonna be on the test, if you say no, that will send a message to at least some students that I probably shouldn't waste my time pursuing that angle. And I should pay, you know, spend my time pursuing the other angle. I should say real quick, um, when I'm saying this, it probably sounds like I'm down on students and saying that students are kind of like amoral strategizers. And I, my, You say well, that as I, though that's I'm, a bad thing. Well, one of the, I mean, one of the the, the sayings that that I love to give to colleagues and others is don't hate the players, hate the game. Mm -hmm. If you understand the game that students are playing because everything points there, you'll understand why students are asking you if it's on the test. You'll understand why students are cramming and dumping rather than wasting several weeks of, of, of study. Uh, if they think that that's not going to pay off for them, you'll understand why students show up at your office and try to petition for that extra five points to to bump their grade up to an a uh, it It makes very good sense once you understand this uh yeah i mean there's there's so many i mean this is just the
0: basic point that if if a if an institution operates according to certain rules and those rules determine things that are of value to you, then you're going to try to to be seen by the people who enforce those rules is valuable, right? Regardless of what the point of the rules is. So like we were talking before this uh, recording about the NFL combine and about how, um, how, how, NFL teams use the NFL combine to make a prediction about whether or not a player is going to be good for their team. And I looked into this and it turns out it's not a good predictor. It's not. It's it's not. That, that how fast their 40 yard dash time is is a wow. is a pretty good predictor of for certain positions, right? right? And there are certain there are certain parts of the combine that are pretty good for certain positions, but far and away the best predictor of how successful they'll be in the NFL is how successful they were in college. Right. More than the combine. Now, if, if you do extremely well on the combine or extremely poorly, that is pretty well correlated with success. But even that can be misleading. Right. But now imagine that you say to players, the main determinant of whether you get into an NFL team is how you do in the combine. Right. Even though, as it turns out, it's not a good predictor of NFL success. Right. What will happen is that people will try to get their combine scores up. They'll try right. to get like, I'm gonna, instead of, instead of playing more football uh, games, I'm yes. gonna try to get my number of 225 reps up, right? right? Because other, I mean, it'd be great if, if being good at football was what they wanted for their team, but apparently they're not interested in that. They're interested right. in how many reps you can do on, on, the, right. on the bench press. So I'm just gonna try to get good at that. And um, so, so that's sort of how it is with grades, you might think that like students are, they would love it if what mattered was learning, but what matters really more than learning is grades. And it would be great if grades were a good measure of how much they learned,
1: but if they're not a good
0: measure of how much they learned and students have to choose between, should I get the good grade and then be able to get a good job? Or should I learn and get a bad grade and not get a bad job? It's not crazy for them to choose the good grade and the good job over the learning.
1: Yeah, and I should, we should also clarify. I don't think this is an all or nothing proposition. I don't think that like, as soon as you introduce grades everyone becomes you know, like so focused on the target that the learning is just a byproduct. Uh, I did the most unscientific study ever of my classes Mm -hmm. where I had them um, answer anonymously a survey that I just kind of gave in class that basically asked them, and okay, these are teacher educators. These are soon to be teachers and teaching is a career people go into generally speaking because they really want to do it. It's not a career you go into for the money or, or whatever. Uh, And the degree culminates in a teaching certificate, which is basically your ticket to being able to work in 95% of the schools in the country, which are public schools. Yeah. So I asked them, if you could go through the teacher ed program and not get a certificate, but learn a ton, or you could go through a program that would give you a teaching certificate like that and not have to learn anything what would you rather do? And I didn't give them a binary choice. I said like, I gave them a scale. Like on this side, this is the degree only no learning. On this side, this is the learning only no degree. Where do you fall? And most students were like at the 70% one side or 70% other side. Uh, Very few people were all or nothing. Uh, But again, these are teacher educators. They wanna go teach. So they do feel like there's a value in learning. Stuff, but they're also like, but what's the goal of learning? Ultimately it is to become a teacher. I need a certification to get a teaching degree. So it's generally not all or nothing, but I would say more students did come out towards the certification side than the learning side. Yeah, and so here's the question.
0: Uh, Do you think there's a good correlation between getting good grades and learning? And if not, Why not? Why why can't we make a system where we set up some tasks where if the students demonstrate goodness at those tasks, it means they've learned a lot. Like here's an example. Imagine I have a philosophy class and it's got 30 students in it. And I say to them, here's how I'm going to assess your learning. I am going to give you a series of oral tests over the course of the semester. It's gonna be 15 minutes each oral test And you're just going to meet with me in my office. And there there is going to be these weeks over the course of semester where we set up meeting times. And I'm going to assess you on how how good I think you are as a reasoner about certain topics. Here's a list of the topics I'm going to ask you about. I don't know what questions I'm going to ask you about, but I know it's going to be about this general topic, Cartesian dualism or whatever. And then I want to see what kind of conversation I can have with you. And then if I think you've shown good reasoning, you'll get an A. If I think you've shown less good, B, et cetera, et cetera. And then I, that's how they get their grades. I've never done this before, because it's a bit intensive and students are terrified of oral tests, um, which is funny, because I think they're a lot easier than written tests, but I like to talk, so. Um, I could do a thing where I could give them a choice between oral tests and written tests, um,
1: but I haven't done that yet. But
0: let's just say that the oral test thing, do you think that would indicate
1: learning? I mean, there are better way, there are better or worse ways to design Mm-hmm. Tests and 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 uh and assessments, but I think part of it really has to do with um what kind of learning you want. Um like one of the big differences that I've really struggled with as a professor is that at the end of the day, I find that the worst learning involves teaching learners to answer questions that learners themselves didn't ask. Okay. Right. Like, like I've been in meetings where we've designed assessments and we're like, what is what are the most interesting questions that we can have students write about? And I'm like, I mean, if they didn't ask it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you might stumble across just by luck. I, you know, I like it's it's the, just a the classic difference between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. For yeah. those who don't know, intrinsic motivation is the stuff you do sheerly because you want to do it. I, I, the way I explain it to my students is if there is no payoff at all for that activity, other than the joy of doing it, would you still do it? If yes, that's intrinsic. If no, there's some extrinsic variable that you're trying to achieve. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it would be, it would be, that would be, your design would be better than some other designs, but even then, it's still like, if I was a student, I would think, Cool. I'm going to learn as much as I can about what Dr. Gressis likes by way of reasoning styles. I'm going to learn what he thinks in terms of his philosophy and not say anything that offends that. Um, I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm going to become the best speaker I can. Yeah. So, so now,
0: so then this, this, to, to keep with this example, the question becomes how gameable would I be right? How easy is it to convince me in a conversation, you've learned something when in fact you actually haven't learned anything. And that might be hard. So here's an example. Imagine I tell you um, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a place in college depending on how you do in the SAT. And if you get a 1600, you'll definitely get in. Well, you can take tons of SAT practice tests. You can go to lots of uh, tutors and you can take the SAT just as many times as you want. There are some people I'm predicting, short of cheating, who aren't going to be able to get a 1600, even if they know that's exactly what they're asked to do. Right? In order to get a 1600, you'd have to have this like huge vocabulary, right? Oh, they wanna know what abecedarian means. Well, I'll just have to know all the fancy words. Well, that's not easily done, right? If you could know all the fancy words, that would actually tell us something quite important. So like, do you think the problem with learning with with the relationship between grades and learning is just that professors aren't creative enough with the kinds of assessments they use to measure learning? Or do you think that, no, the problem is deeper than that? Even if they were really creative, the problem is, is that the school environment, and now we're starting to get to the work of Brian Kaplan, the school environment just isn't close enough to the environment in which they would apply the skills. For learning on school assessments to be important in any event, so yeah,
1: yeah, I, I think to I think to a large degree the latter. Um, schools have been stuck in this this. There's two functions to contemporary, like to industrial kind of schools, that seem to go together really well, but they conflict at the margins. The one is the obvious one, which is the learning. You go there with less knowledge, you presumably leave with more. The second is the certification, which is once you leave with more, we stamp your forehead so that you can get a job or so that you can go on to graduate school or so you can do whatever. And the problem is that, I mean, while they seem like they would be complementary to each other and sometimes they are, um, it's often the case that people are there at school for the certification purpose more than they are for the learning purpose. And when once schools do that certification purpose, essentially learning becomes sort of like the thing you just kind of have to do to get the certification. Yeah. Uh, so instead of the target and then the certification is just what happens after you've learned stuff, um, the certification is like the goal. And then you just, the learning is like the race you have to, to, to ride to, to get that certification. I mean, I think at root, one of the big um, problems is that especially for certification fields like teacher education or like engineering or like, you know, uh, something like that, you, we are having students learn a vast amount of stuff that they just don't care about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're having them take general uh, education courses that they really don't want to take. We're having them take specialization courses that they really don't want to do. Um, so in teaching, in, in teacher ed, if there's any teacher educators out there, or there are any teachers out there, one of the things I often overhear from students who are in their internships with working teachers is they'll come in with an assignment and they're telling their 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 uh, clinical teacher about it. And the clinical teacher is like, yeah, okay, cool, do that for school, but you will never use that. I'm just telling you right now, you will never use that in the field. And that has an effect on student attitudes, right? When they come into class and they hear their clinical teachers saying things like that. Um, Yeah. I mean, creative, more creative teaching and more creative assessments would be really nice, but I don't think it's going to solve that problem. The problem of people who don't want to learn a particular thing, but know that they have to learn it for some other goal are going to kind of by nature often just choose the least painful route to get that goal that they can because frankly, they have other things they wanna do. And I think we all know that from experience. Like Even us professors know that from experience, we've had those situations where we've had to learn that stuff and we probably weren't as eager about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, that's actually not quite the same thing as as Kaplan's issue, right? So Kaplan's issue is what's called transfer. Yeah, so transfer is imagine and, and, and the, the, the best example is what you might call kinesiological transfer. So imagine I want to become a really fast runner in a race, but I live in a, a very small apartment in New York City, and there's a bunch of people who insist that if I leave my apartment, I have to have a mask, and they'll scold me if I don't. And I don't want to deal with that. So I just run on a treadmill. And I run more and more on a treadmill. And that's how I practice for the marathon that seems really similar to running a marathon. If I can run 26 miles on a treadmill, it seems like I should be able to run 26 miles for a marathon. But what they've discovered is that even with something as close as running on a treadmill and running outside, it, it, the, the transfer isn't as great as you think, even despite how close those activities are. Similarly, being able to run extremely quickly in the combine doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna run extremely quickly on the field because it's different just running in a straight line versus trying to dodge people trying to tackle you. And even if you had robots on the field who were trying to tackle you, that would still be different because robots don't act like humans, right? Right. And so when I teach you, here is the um, ad hominem fallacy you and then i show you a video of some famous person engaging in the ad hominem fallacy well this is and, and then i say now that you know this you should be able to use it when you go out in the real world and you see somebody using it to employ the you should be yeah. able to no no problem. you should be able to identify it you should be hopefully you can employ it too <laughs> but you should be able to identify it. i mean honestly that might be a better way to teach fallacies than <laughs> the current like, way we you use can go ahead and use this yeah if you here's how to take advantage of people let's use these fallacies. Right, that might actually make students more interested. Like it'd be like Robert Greene's Forty Eight Laws of Power, except for logic. Right, if I want to trick people, you know. But but the thing is, even if if it, even if I just want to teach them how to identify fallacies, and I show somebody using the ad hominem fallacy, the problem is they know they're looking for the ad hominem fallacy. Right. That's already the problem. Second right. of all, they're seeing somebody on TV, right? That's and so so they have that safety. This person can't do anything to me. Third, you know there's a, they know that there's a right answer here that the teachers like often when people teach fallacies, we're going to say, let's today, let's do these three fallacies. Yeah. Right. And so in the real world, it doesn't, it doesn't announce itself in that way. People don't say I'm about to use the ad hominem fallacy. Right. So just see if you can catch me. They just do stuff. Right. And usually when they do do fallacies, they don't do it as egregiously as the examples that we'll show in class, have them do it.
1: Right, you're gonna show like the examples that are fairly obvious. Right, and if you show hard examples, students will complain. They'll say you're not being clear,
0: right? Right? But the problem is if you want it to be more like real life, you can't be clear. You can't say, which here are the three possible
1: fallacies. You have a ninja cat, by the way. That cat just jumped on that thing and just nailed that landing yeah he's that was awesome if he were a better cat i would be proud of him now see if 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 he had to learn how to jump in by reading textbooks in class the transfer it'd be limited wouldn't be there it'd be very limited
0: oh i've i've tried to teach him to read many a time and what happens and this is true he drools he's a cat who drools on my books and papers oh such a terrible cat he also pees on stuff let's leave him out of it yeah um His name, by the way, is Avon Meowsdale. Avon Meowsdale. It's a a, a play on Avon Barksdale from The Wire. Okay. So anyway, um, so we're talking about transfer. So that's one big problem is that even if students learn everything you want them to in college, and they don't, right? They don't. I mean, they don't, but even if they uh, did.
1: Yeah. I mean, Brian Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education, um, has a chapter where he goes into a lot of data showing that the data that we have on when you test people later to see how much they retained from school. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. And, and, and um, you know, I've seen some data that's not as bad, but yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. I mean, it's better in your major
0: than it is for the stuff that you like, if you took one college class in history and you're an engineering major and they ask you four years later, what you learned in that class? It wouldn't be surprising if you recalled nothing. Quite literally nothing. You might not even remember the name of the class or that you took it or the professor's name, anything like that. It wouldn't be surprising. Yeah. Um, And so, so yeah. So there's, first of all, did you learn it? Second of all, if you learned it, how long have you retained it? And third of all, even if you've learned it and retained it, can you transfer it to things that matter to you?
1: And there's like a constant drop in each thing. Let me give you two of my favorite examples to illustrate the transfer problem. The first is from a study of like 20 some years ago. I don't recall the author or the title, but it was mentioned in a book called The Math Myth and Other Stem Delusions, um, which is basically a, a, a math, I think it was a mathematician, went and wrote a book to figure out what of the advanced math that we teach in school do people in math-heavy fields actually use? And, and the answer is not much at all. Uh, mm-hmm. When you ask them, do you use this? They're like, no. Use that? nut no, Well, but we teach that to every kid in school. Anyway, uh, the study was a mathematician decided to go into to shadow some carpet installers to figure out what math they use on the job. And she saw that they use some sort of formula to calculate kind of how much carpet they needed for an individual room. Like one of those areas where like there's edges that are really tough to measure for, they would use a, a formula to kind of calculate it. And she's, she mentioned it to him and she said, wow, you use, when did you learn that? And they're like, what are you talking about? She's like, you know, this formula, they're like lady, what are you talking about? Uh, and she said, and she showed them like, when you did this, you calculated it. That's this. They're like, really? We just picked that up on the job. That's not something, and maybe they learned it in school and they forgot it. I think that was part of her point is that they probably did learn it in school, but they forgot it. They just learned on the job. Um, The second is there's a book by uh, Jean Lave, a sociologist. Um, The name is eluding me. I think it's math in the real world, something like that. It was like 1980s. And she shadowed a bunch of people, real life people doing real life stuff that would involve math. So she went to like Weight Watchers meetings. She... um, looked at how people shopped in the store, calculating prices and things like that. And what she found in all sorts of examples is the math that people use in their daily life looks nothing like math on paper to the point that when you give them the same equation on paper that they did in the real world, they often couldn't do it. Because in the real world, you use tools to solve math. Like my favorite example was that she was at a Weight Watchers meeting and it was something like... um there was some reason why, oh, they someone had to half a recipe that involved like a third cup of flour, and they had to half that. Um, and what they did was they just used the tools available to them to half it. And what, what the person did is they just dumped the flour on the table, took something to separate the flour in half, put half of it to the side, put the rest back in the measuring cup and put it in. Yeah. Um, but when you give that, you know, when when you give something like that to them in person, uh, or I'm sorry, on a math word problem, as you would in school, they often can't do it.
0: Yeah, I have I have a couple examples myself. So one is I was teaching my son, who's six, how to do um, basic arithmetic. And one of the things that they're doing, he's in LAUSD, is that they keep on, like, if they give him a a problem like 8 plus 4, the thinking is that he won't be able to figure out what 8 plus 4 is. But if he he takes 2 away from the 4 and gives it to the 8, he's got 10. And then 10 plus 2, he can figure out 10 plus 2. And then he can see that since 10 plus 2 equals 12, 8 plus 4 equals 12. But he actually can see what 8 plus 4 equals. Mm. And so then I say, okay, now take two away from the four and give it to the eight. He doesn't know what I'm talking about. Hmm. And then if I say, what's four minus two? He's like, that's two. And I say, what's two plus eight? That's 10. But he, he, he doesn't know why he needs to learn this other way because he already right. had the one way. And, one one? I, and when I do it with toys, right? If I take like eight of his wrestler toys and four of his wrestler toys, and I say, take two away from the four and give it to the eight. Now how many do you have over here and how many do you have over there? He gets that when he sees the objects that he can manipulate. But when it's just the symbols, he doesn't. And what's fascinating as well, is that just the other day, a wrestler named Danny Hodge died. Danny Hodge, if you don't know, is the greatest wrestler in American history. And maybe the greatest wrestler in the world. There's all sorts of crazy stories about Danny Hodge. But Nico, my son, is totally into heights, weights, and ages of wrestlers right he's going through this phase I think they call it islands of expertise right where this is when kids get into dinosaurs and stuff he's into professional wrestlers yeah and so so this is a true story um Nico said uh who's Danny Hodge and I told him and and he said how old was he when he died and I said 88 and he goes oh he was born in 1932 I'm like, Jesus, kid, like he's subtracting 88 from 2020 and getting 1932 that he's really motivated to do that kind of math. Right. And this gets to your point about motivation. But when you contextualize it on paper, if I just wrote down 2020 minus 88, I don't think he'd have any idea
1: that it's 1932. Or he'd do it very differently and it might be like a tortured. I don't know how he did it in the first place, to be honest. Like when I was a teacher in Baltimore County, um, I remember kids not doing very well in math. And, and I was a special education teacher. So some of these kids were very behind in math. Um, you know, double digit addition sometimes took some work, but you could listen to them talking about football scores and right. They would see like, Oh, this team has 40 points. What are all the combinations of, of ways they could have scored that and they can tell you. Right. So it's, it's yeah. Um And I guess, if we want to segue into Brian Kaplan's book, because I know that you wanted to talk about that and I reviewed that for the Journal of yeah. Value Inquiry, um, what this all has to do with Kaplan's book is that if school, if it turns out that we forget most of what we learn, and if it turns out that the stuff that we do learn ends up not being easy to transfer like we kind of thought, like the, the, the gut psychology is that if you learn it, you can apply it to whatever context uh, and Kaplan's saying, yeah, "No, that doesn't actually jibe with the literature," and he's right; uh, it doesn't. Yeah, really Douglas Dennerman is the
0: main guy on transfer, and he's yeah. done tons of stuff. He's very yeah. skeptical that transfer is even possible. There amount
1: of transfer that can happen. But yeah, it's it's um, it's it's not as great as we we thought. If all of this stuff is true, then what is school for?
0: Yeah, and, and Kaplan, Kaplan has a theory yeah.
1: thesis is that it's primarily a signaling value, meaning you get the certificate and you show the certificate to people and that's more likely to recommend you for certain jobs. And I got to say, like, I mean, you know, I've been researching this for a while and I actually talked with Brian um, when he was writing the book. Uh, Mm -hmm. We were kind of a chance meeting uh, at one of the seminars that we were at. And I had mentioned to him, like there are authors who have gotten here you know, decades earlier, like David Labrie, uh, the, hist- the, soci- the sociological historian or historical sociologist has written a book called How to Succeed in School Without Really Learning. Um, and his thesis is basically once schools really introduced the credential and once more people started getting the credential and once jobs started saying, well, cool, we're going to use the credential as a way to sort applicants. Well, understandably, people started shifting the way they did school towards the certification more than the learning. Um, yeah, and Kaplan's thesis is that it's really a signaling value. And by the time I read his book, I had read so many other people come to the similar conclusions that I wasn't very surprised. It yeah. with what I was th- already thinking. Well, what's so,
0: so let, we should say what it does signal. His thesis is that if it you can, you. It, it, what, it, what it signals, yeah, is that if you can graduate college in four to six years, then this indicates you have a relatively high level of intelligence. You have a relatively high level of conscientiousness and you have a relatively high level of conformity.
1: Stictuitiveness. Yeah.
0: It yeah. Conscientiousness, I think is stick to yeah. Conformity is doing what you're told just because you're told, right? Like right. even if you think it's silly or you don't see the point, you still do it, which is a valuable skill. Right. And the thing is, is that, he's not saying I should, I, I sort of misrepresented him a bit. He's not saying that if you graduate from college, you are relatively high in all three, but the combination you have is relatively high relative to the rest of the population.
1: To, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. So, so you might not be very smart, but very high in conformity and very high in stick and that's, you know, good enough. Right. Like, and the thought is that this is valuable to employers because it's, it's like a four year test that, that is, um, that measures how the combination of intelligence conformity and conscientiousness. And if you pass the test by getting a degree, then this shows that you're relatively valuable to employers. But the the easier we make college, the easier we make college, the less valuable the degree becomes because relatively less less smart, relatively. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, um, I, I think of it as like um, college education in general is one of those fields where the, the provider and the student probably disagree on what, they're getting from the process, yeah. and what what's going on in the process? You know, professors I think really like to think that, well, I'm changing lives by transforming. You know, offering this kind of transformative instruction, and it's going to um, make people wiser and smarter and better. Um, and for some students, that's probably true. But the data seems to be more pessimistic than that. Um, now, do do you think? So a couple of things. Like first of all, although lots of people got to that
0: part before Kaplan did what his innovation was, was saying, look, there's this whole body of economic research and there's this whole body of educational psychological research and what they're saying contradicts each other, right? What the economists are saying is that the more you spend on education, the more you increase human capital and the more wealthy you make your country. And what the educational psychologists were saying was that education does not seem to increase human capital very much. And then the mystery becomes how can both those stories be true? Because there's tons of evidence from the educational psychological literature that it doesn't increase human capital much. And there's tons of evidence from the economics literature that the more you spend on education, the higher the human capital. So what gives here? And so he tries to address that puzzle. And um, I, I don't really remember the rest of the stuff about the, the economics, how he's how he squared the circle there, like how he, it had to do with like most yeah. economists. They just, they, they just measure outputs. They don't measure inputs. And there's lots of countries where, um, you know, they, they spent tons, like some countries didn't spend a lot. Some countries did spend a lot, but they still went up and overall human capital and stuff like that. Yeah. That didn't, that, that wasn't why I was so affected by the book. I was so affected by the book because I thought, well, Jesus, if he's right, then I feel like, what am I doing here? <laughs> right, yeah. like, why be a teacher if I'm not really appreciably affecting students' learning? And also, when I am affecting their learning, it still doesn't really translate to their lives afterwards. They'll forget it. And of course, it's not true for all students. It's not like students have learned nothing yeah. from from me. They've learned something. Even Kaplan thinks it's like eighty percent signaling, twenty yeah, percent human capital. Right. Right. <laughs> but the thing is, is that after reading the book, every time a student says to me. Wow, I learned so much from your course. The first thing they'll say is, Oh, like what? And,
1: <laughs>
0: I seriously do this. That's, and that's a good one. Inevitably, yeah. they can't think of anything off the top of their head, but they say, I don't remember anything right now. And it's kind of unfair of me, right? Because they weren't expecting me to say that. Expecting, yeah, yeah, sure. And so I said, So that's I suddenly said,
1: grateful response to them, actually.
0: <laughs> it's, Well, I can't take a compliment. I'll tell you that. and And so, so like, Cause I tell my students, it's nice of you to tell me that I I really increased your learning, but how do you know? Like, how do you know that I've increased your learning? How do you know it was me as opposed to just growing up as opposed to just something else that was happening that day? Like, did you track it? Like, did you know where you were beforehand? Did you know where you were afterwards? Sometimes they they know, I I talk about this in class all the time too. Like I talk about how, how pained I am about like, I don't know if I've helped you or not. I might even have hurt you and I don't know that either. Right. And so like this has really demotivated me, which is sort of why I was like reading this book. But here's the thing.
1: Yeah.
0: If if education isn't about transfer and I I started to think maybe it shouldn't be about transfer. Maybe it should just be about inspiring them, maybe giving them like another way of looking at the world. But if your thing is true, that students don't really like to do it unless it, it matters to their own life, unless they find their own motivation. Then it's really hard for me to inspire them, except if I accidentally happen to say the things that happens to be interesting to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I I I uh try to structure my courses as much as I can in a in a in a way where um I take all the game aspects as much out of the equation as possible. Um, so I don't give them generally a set curriculum. I say here's the course goals, here are the course objectives. I'm gonna give you a series of three, three week long projects. Your job is to choose which of these goals you wanna learn about or you think you need to learn about most or combine them however you want. Um, propose to me how they link up with the course goals and then do that project for three weeks. And my job is going to be to help you through that, whether it's encouragement or giving you instruction if you want it or something like that. Because I just found that at the end of the day, I think the big problem is that we, again, like we insist on giving students answers to questions they did not themselves ask.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I, I as part of, as my research, I study kind of unexpectedly over the past few years, I've, I've started studying um, people who learn outside of school. That could be adults who learn stuff outside of school environments, but it's also kids who go through the process of what we call unschooling, which is kind of like what it sounds like it's learning outside of a school environment. So uh, on philosophical principle, the family allows the child to learn what they want, when they want, they don't put them in school. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not neglect. Uh, It's, but it, you know, it is sort of like, learn what you want to learn the way you want to learn it. And the studies that exist on these kids show a few things. First, the really interesting thing is these kids come out essentially not that much different in terms of Ability levels, ability to get jobs, ability to, to, to know what they need to know. They, they come out pretty similar to kids who went through 12 years of school. And mm-hmm. that's really interesting. These kids go to college if they want to. And when you ask them how they did it, they're like, what do you mean? I figured out what I needed to do. I got the SAT books. I studied for a month. Took the SAT, did pretty good. You know, got a GED, studied for that for a few months. Got it. Uh, But the second thing that's really interesting about these kids is that they, the number one thing they've learned is how to learn. These kids are so good at figuring out how to learn stuff because they've had to do it repeatedly over years when no one's telling them what to learn. And that's what I try to make my classroom look like. Now, obviously, I'm constrained because I have classes that have course goals and I can't deviate from those goals, so I don't. Um, i don't say learn whatever i say here are the course goals learn what you want to learn and what we do is we publicly display our projects to each other so that folks who want to learn about what susan just learned about for three weeks can look at her project Mm -hmm. and learn that if they want to so and after three projects we have basically you know in a class of 30 we have 90 projects up and by then students can go and look at each other's projects and learn any of the other stuff they want to learn. Uh, so let me, let me respond to that. Te- tell them what they're supposed to learn every week. Okay. So, so
0: let me do a couple of things here. First of all, you said that the students who are unschooled.
1: Yeah.
0: End up pretty much the same as students who are schooled. Yes. But Probably you also have, same. you also have this theory that, um, what makes it the case that people really learn is, are they, are they asking questions that they care about? Yeah. I would think that the unschoolers should be higher in ability than the schools, given right. well, your theory. I mean,
1: I'm using traditional metrics like ability to get into college, ability to like. But like you know, even SAT jobs.
0: scores, I think, you know, or or meeting, um, you know, because if they're homeschooled, right, they're still going to have to meet every year the The standards for kids of their age, depending right? Have on, yeah, like the state, depending on what state you live it varies in,
1: varies a lot.
0: Yeah, and yeah. so yeah. why 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 aren't these fourth grade unschoolers scoring at like seventh grade or sixth grade <clears throat> or something like that? Do they just spend a lot less
1: time teaching them, um, or do they a lot of the stuff they end up learning isn't school stuff?
0: Because okay, so what do they end up learning? They end
1: up learning is like you know, I, I to play wanna, video I games. I want to vi- edit videos. I, uh-huh. I know uh, uh, well, he was fourteen. Uh, I'm sorry, he was thirteen when I knew him. He was he had a YouTube channel. He was editing videos and and putting them up. And um, they're learning how to write fiction. They're learning how to do all sorts of other stuff. What's really interesting about unschoolers is that when they do want to learn math, let's say for the SAT. It generally doesn't take them that long to do it. So mm-hmm. we think of like, well, oh, like learning algebra is like a year long process or like a, you know, however long the typical class is. And they're like, no, I got the book for the, you know, SAT and I learned it in like a month and a half. It's not that hard. Okay. Because so at that things? point, they were really interested. They, they were like, well, I want to go to college. I need to learn this math. Yeah. I'm going to sit down with a book. I'm going to learn it. And they're pretty good at kind of teaching themselves or figuring out who to go to, to, to for help. Right. So like a lot of people criticize
0: what they call teaching to the test because it seems like, well, you know, all you're doing is spending your time telling them how to, how to do well in this one test. You're not telling them about how to do algebra in general or something like that. And so they might say, well, geez, if that's the kind of math they're learning, they're only learning math to just pass the test, why is that? Why think that's as good as the kind of stuff they would do in school? And what would be your response to that? I think you have an obvious response. What's your response?
1: I'm not sure I understand the question,
0: sorry. Well, the question is this, if you let kids be in charge of their own learning, then what's going to happen is that a lot of them aren't gonna do math at all until they have to, right? right? And then they'll just learn the math they need to pass the SAT. right? And so they're cheating themselves out of all this math they would have learned in a traditional schooling environment. Yeah. And, okay. and so I, yeah, yeah. I And so the thought is that they actually haven't learned very much. They just learned how to pass this test. They're teaching themselves to the so, test. Yeah.
1: And two so answers. we have
0: good reason to think they haven't learned nearly as much as they would have in a schooling environment.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, two answers. First of all, um, I think a case can be made that the kids in school probably haven't at the end of the day, learned as much math as you thought they did. Um, <laughs> right. Overall. That's the obvious the second, rejoinder. And the yeah. second answer is is that the unschoolers are usually pretty honest about that. They're like, yeah, I learned it to pass the test. But that's because I've never needed this sort of math before. Like mm-hmm. this sort of math does not show up in my life very often. Mm-hmm. And if it does, I'll learn it. But if it doesn't, am I worse off? Yeah. So now what about,
0: though, a different kind of criticism, which is that Look, kids, even college students, they are too young to know what it is they should know. There's all sorts of things that are important for people to know just to be educated citizens. They should know, you know, how the House of Representatives works, how the Congress works, you know, the three branches of government. They should know their congressperson, et cetera, et cetera. This isn't fun to know, but they need to know it. Like my son, Nico, he hates reading. He hates writing. He likes math but he hates reading and writing. And if I left him to his own devices, he would end up knowing a heck of a lot about professional wrestling, but he wouldn't know how to read and he wouldn't know how to write. You think he would
1: develop a, you don't think he would learn to read through uh, his study of professional wrestling. Like at some point he would hit this thing where he's like, yeah. Oh my God, like I kind of need to read stuff. I kind of think at some point he would like, I don't know when I did. That's what happens with fun schoolers generally speaking.
0: Yeah. I bought him some, um, some professional wrestling books for children, right? DK two readers or whatever they're called.
1: Yeah. And
0: he, he, he wants me to read them to him, but, you know, I'm trying to uh, have him refuse. read about
1: what refuse. How old is he? He's like, six. You're six. You can start like, I'll help you. Oh, I know. I know. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying, uh,
0: but that, that's his, his right now, his technique, right? He still doesn't want to learn to read. He wants somebody to do his own problems. Yeah. So at some point, you know, people need to step in and say, Uh, we know better than you, you need to do this, even though you don't find it interesting. Right. But that writ large for unschoolers, right. How much sure they might be good at learning how to learn, but they're not good at having to learn about things they don't want to know about. They're not good at following rules. They don't want to follow. You might get a bunch of uh, narcissists or a bunch of anarchists or whatever.
1: I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm more sympathetic with that argument. Like the one that really bothers me is there's certain things that you need to know before you're ready to know them. Otherwise it's too late when you need it. Like the obvious one is stuff like what your rights are if you're called in by the police for questioning. I mean, like if you don't know what your rights are, it's too late. The problem is, I mean, every point of data we have is that schools aren't really instilling in in kids this wide base of knowledge of what their rights are. So the idea that you're going to teach it to them years before they need it and they're just going to hold it in their heads until, you know, five years later when they need it is a really tough ask. Um, I'm not sure schools are are doing that nearly as, as well as, as, uh, as we'd like to think. I mean, the, the other thing is that for those things where you can learn it when you need it, mm-hmm. you know, we live in 2020 soon to be 2021. I'm sure when this airs, it'll be 2021 the internet is pretty ubiquitous. It's never been easier to learn on demand as it has, like if this were 1973, that argument would make more sense. But it's 2021 and the argument has lost a lot of its force um, because you can learn a lot of stuff kind of on your own. But it gets us back to the grading thing because if you want to teach people a lot of stuff that they don't really care about, you're going to need a way to get them to do it. And that way is going to be some extrinsic incentive. And we know from a lot of research that extrinsic incentives work in a small number of areas and they don't really work very well in other areas. Like if you want people to do things with any semblance of enthusiasm or if you want people to really put themselves into an activity, uh, extrinsic incentives are not very good. If I want you to collate packets and put stuff in envelopes Strinsic incentives are awesome. But if I want you to like learn something legitimately, sincerely, not the best strategy. Mm -hmm. So, so this- sounds um, really pessimistic though, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) Well, it's not pessimistic. It just raises the question of like, if you, I mean, people say, look, this is all academic. Schools are never going to change. You're never going to change their grading system. They're never going to be a big unschooling moment. Well, I don't know, I don't know what to expect. I, I don't. I, I don't think. Look, they didn't always have grades, it's, right? It's,
1: well, it's locked in. I mean, they have they they adopted grades because we wanted to achieve schools at scale, and mm-hmm. unless we want to ramp back schools from the scale that we've achieved, which yeah. I think is probably unlikely, although COVID maybe offers a, a, a grain of, of hope, I guess there. Uh, it's unlikely. I mean, it's, it's, it's just kind of a path dependence. Once you lock in this grading mechanism, you build things around it. Yeah. Like one of the exercises I do with my students, because I, I'm in an ed school and we think about like the purpose of grading is I ask them at some point um, without knowing where this conversation was going to go. I asked them, suppose tomorrow the, the acting president issues an executive order that says any school that wants any federal funds of any kind can no longer use any sort of, of letter or number grading system starting tomorrow. What about schools would have to change? And I put them in small groups and they talk about it. And then we talk about as large group, we put a big list up. And again, I didn't have any idea where this was gonna go when I did it. I just thought we were gonna think about the purposes of grading. And basically they came up with like school as we know it would basically cease to exist. You can no longer track students from one class to another and know when they're supposed to go from Spanish one to Spanish two, because you have no way to objectively tell that. You have no way to motivate them to do stuff they don't want to do, or you'd have to think of a whole new extrinsic motivating system to do it. Um, You have no way to let the school know essentially how they're doing writ large with all their students, because grading is a really efficient way to do that you would lose everything that makes school function. And that's again, why I call it the great economy. It's like, it's the economy on which this whole thing is built.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I guess what's pessimistic is that if your story's correct, right? That the best way to learn is to try to answer your own questions and what you do learn in school tends not to transfer, then what's happening in schools, right? That's one question. Like, is it all a huge waste of time? It's not all a huge waste of time because one, one they do clearly learn is in writing and reading simply because they get they have to read so much. They They practice their skill every day, every hour. Right. And they get feedback on it too. They have to practice writing a lot and they get feedback on their writing a lot. And they, they have to, you know, if they want to look at YouTube videos, they have to know how to search for them. And there's all sorts of things.
1: By the way, let me pause there because I love to tell the story about I'm kind of the weirdish exception to that because I am of a certain age where I was in school right pre-internet. Like, the internet really exploded kind of at the very end of high school and early college. College is when the first professors who are always the, the cool professors are like, yeah, you can email me your assignment. And people are like, what's email? Um, so I learned in elementary school, a lot of cursive because I guess they thought cursive was still gonna be a thing. And I learned a lot of print. I didn't learn how to type. I learned, I how, learned to how to type, type. type late in high school. I learned on my own, really. I mean, I took typing classes, but I also did that computer program, Mavis Beacon teaches typing. Heard <laughs> of it?
0: I didn't take it. I, I I actually learned from my from my typing class. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't have so, to teach myself. The typing class worked.
1: So, if I think about the writing that I do, I mean, the 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 obviously there's certain things that are the same between typing and writing, like comma rules. But even some of those are gone. I mean, like used to learn when you were typing like two spaces in between the, the sentence. Yeah, my and, yeah, and my now wife now still does it's, that, It's different. I tell her not to. Uh, you didn't have spell checks, so you had to, you did things differently. Um, so I am kind of that exception where if I really think about it, I don't think I really did learn how to write in school. To some extent I did, but to another extent, the writing I do now doesn't look anything like what the writing was that I did in school.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of um, that story of uh, Steve Jobs saying that his most useful class at Reed College was the calligraphy class because it taught him a sense of aesthetics. Mm. It's like, okay, <laughs> but how many people did it do that for, right? right. Think of all the, all the time you spent on cursive. How much has it, how, could you have used that time better? Oh man, um, I
1: remember having to go, go like the SAT and, and GRE, they had that stupid thing where you had to sign a pledge about not cheating, and you had to do it in cursive for whatever reason. Oh, I had somebody else do that for
0: me. No, I'm kidding.
1: I remember trying to do that, and I it, I couldn't. I, I I'm sure I got through it, but it was illegible for sure. <laughs> um, so we talk about um, re- you know retention of information was.
0: Yeah, th- this actually leads to the last part of our conversation, which is that if we're so down on school, so down on learning, how did we get to be where we are, right? Yeah, like yeah. I. I, I'm, I'm 44 years old. I have a PhD from the University of Michigan. I have an undergraduate degree from the University of Dayton. Um, I've been teaching at CSU Northridge for uh, about 12 years. Um, I think I know a lot about philosophy. How did I learn it, if not for school, right? So you seem to know a lot about the history of education and about the philosophy of education. How did you learn it? Was it in graduate school? And if it wasn't in graduate school, what the hell happened during those times? What happened to you in undergraduate school? Yeah, well so, you told some of the story before in a previous podcast with Dan, I think.
1: Well, right. When we were talking before, you had framed it as well, let me ask you if you ever had like a transformative experience in school. Yeah, you like that and way of framing it better? Learning. I can do that. The only thing I can say is that when I was in K-12, I was an average to below average student. And the only transformative experiences I had were either in music classes, which were kind of like guaranteed A's. Anyone who's taken high school band knows that it's kind of like a guaranteed A. And in extracurriculars, like band and chorus and stuff like that. But the interesting thing about that is that I was so bad in high school that I skipped 40 and a half days um, in my junior year. I know that because I'm writing kind of an education memoir and I wanted to get the transcript to see how bad it was. And it was bad. Um, I skipped 40 and a half days. But the interesting thing about that is I was really into drum set and I would skip school, blow off school, go home and look at uh, modern drummer magazine, which like, you know, the guitar magazines that have all the like, tr- like the, the sheet music and stuff like that. And I would pick like the hardest song in those. And I'd be like, today my project is I'm going to master this song. And I was meticulous, man. I, I had a tape recorder and I would put, the, put it on record. I'd try to play the song. I listened to it back and I'd like figure out where my mistakes were. I'd go back and redo it. And I guess what's weird about that and why, why I tell the story is because it kind of illustrates that where I applied myself had nothing to do with school and it had nothing to do with grades, but I applied myself every bit as hard towards that thing as I should have towards school. And I remember when the teachers would say, you know, the problem with Kevin is he doesn't apply himself. Um, I was always kind of like, if you only had an idea of what I'm doing when I'm not here. But yeah, so, I mean, long story short, I discovered philosophy in other areas. After college, I went to music college, Berklee College of Music. And after college, I lived in Nashville. I worked at a bookstore. And I was assigned all the sections like philosophy, history, psychology, a little bit of fiction, and I would just start picking up books and our bookstore had like a checkout policy or if it's hardcover, we could take it home for a week. Uh, and I, I picked up some philosophy stuff for reasons that would take too long to explain in this podcast. I just started picking up some philosophy stuff. Um, I picked up like Albert Camus Myth of Sisyph- Sisyphus because I have reason to kind of think that suicide is an interesting question. I uh, picked up some Ayn Rand, you know, some other stuff and I got hooked but I made it through K-12 plus four years of college before it ever dawned on me that there was interesting stuff in these books. Yeah. So that's, and then I got two master's degrees and a PhD. So, what, happened
0: to, what happened in graduate school though? Were you already somebody who liked learning at that point? And were you in a okay, graduate so in school because, course, yeah.
1: the, because the you story, wanted to
0: learn that stuff?
1: The short story is that my first graduate degree was a master's of liberal arts in, at University of Richmond because at some point I was like, I'm no longer going to open mic nights to play my songs for people. I'm staying home and reading. I I really want to do this maybe for a career (laughs) Uh like knowledge or whatever. And uh, I went to University of Richmond, got a master's degree there, loved every minute of it, uh, applied myself like I'd never applied myself to academics before, became a teacher because I knew that teaching involved kind of being in classrooms and conveying knowledge and that seemed really cool. So I was a teacher for a while, and then I uh, decided to get a master's in special ed, uh, like a conditional certificate, basically. So I was like a lateral entry teacher. I was getting my certificate in special ed while I was teaching. So I was doing a master's for that. And then uh, a few years after that, I decided to go for a Ph.D. in education because I was starting to think kind of abstractly about education uh, and I was like, I really want to figure out what makes the school system tick, why it is the way it is. So and you, I, you, you arrived right. at graduate school with a problem in mind, a particular problem. That's right. This is what I want to know. Yeah. And, and I mean, to give you a, a better example of that, I recall when I was at that bookstore reading books on my own for fun, I picked up one of the very books that in high school I had avoided like all get out, which was the Scarlet Letter. By Nathaniel Hawthorne. I remember when it dawned on me how weird that was. So in high school, I avoided it like crazy. Uh, I lied to my parents about having read it. I, I did my best to fudge it with the teachers and stuff like that. And in when I was working in that bookstore, one question would lead to another and somehow I got into American history. Somehow that got me into like thinking about the transcendental movement. And of course, you can't really understand that movement without Hawthorne. So I started reading The Scarlet Letter and I found it kind of interesting. And I just remember thinking, wait a minute, like, how did, why didn't I know that this was an interesting book? And the reason isn't, the reason was that the book itself isn't interesting. You bring interest to it, right? So I had my own questions when I was in my twenties that I brought to this book in a way that I did not bring questions to the book when I was 16. Because again, teachers insist on giving you answers to questions that you never asked. Yeah, so that's kind and of that's like, that's kind of like my story, and I think that does affect how I think about education. Right, and now my
0: story is is somewhat different. I was I was an above average to good. I'd say I was a good student in high school. Um, I was in a lot of the honors classes, but I would I would sometimes get C's in them and or B's or whatever. My 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 GPA was like three until about eleventh grade, and then it got to like three point three, and then in twelfth grade it was like. or something. So I started to like, I would have hated you. Why? Oh, (laughs) because I was
1: like two point low two point.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I mean, I wasn't, I, 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 out of a class of 112 students, I graduated 25th. Okay. And uh, so that was pretty good, right? Like more than the top 25%, but um, you know, I wasn't anywhere near valedictorian or anything like that. And um I went to college, I got a much better GPA in college, and then I went to graduate school and at the University of Michigan <clears throat> and I got my PhD. What's funny about me is that I don't recall having any inspirational teaching experiences, right? So that, there, there were a couple of teachers in high school whose classes I liked going to, uh, Mr. Grigsby and Mr. Guizzo in history and biology respectively. And there were a couple of professors whose classes in college I like going to because of the professors. Um, but in graduate school, and I don't mean to offend any of my former teachers, I just, I never like enjoyed going to classes because I thought the professors were inspirational or super illuminating. There was always a kind of sense of anxiety that I wouldn't understand something and would feel stupid for it. I didn't great great grades in graduate school. Um, and uh, and my, even my dissertation, I did simply because um, I got, I wrote a paper on Con's Theory of Evil and it was the first time a professor in my graduate program said, hey, this might be publishable. So I said, oh, this must be what I should do. I didn't want to do it. I did not want to do it. I had no strategy when I took any graduate courses. I didn't come into graduate school with a question that I wanted to solve. At least I don't recall coming into school with a question I wanted to solve. I know I had to write in my application that I had these questions, but I was just trying to find a question. question that would fit yeah Yeah, a question that they would think is cool for me to have as a question but i don't i honestly don't i liked philosophy i liked arguing right and here's something that sort of that has sort of dawned on me and i'm being serious this is not like i'm not working the audience here this dawned on me while i was talking to you in the last 20 minutes Hmm. dan kaufman who we both know who the audience if they're watching this knows I once told him about how I never had a good teacher, or a great teacher, right? An inspiring educational experience. And he said, you're not that kind of student that you're gonna be able to have such teachers. And I thought he was saying I was a bad student, which I was like, I don't think I was a bad student. And he said, that's not what I mean. I'm not saying you're a bad student. I'm just saying, that's not not how it works for you. And then it occurred to me that like my my favorite educational experience ever was, and I told you about this before, I went to a, a couple of seminars from the Institute for Humane Studies, which is like this classical liberal um, organization that tries to spread classical liberal ideals. really expose so people to them. thing
1: we surprisingly ended up having in common because I yeah. had pretty good experiences with those as well. Yeah, and so I took a few of those seminars
0: and I did all the reading for them because I found it really fascinating because it was yeah. like, it had this, this agenda this ideology and i wanted to see if i could argue against it right and i wanted to argue with people about it and i and i had such great conversations i learned so much about economics i was an economics major but i felt as though i learned a lot more about economics from those like three seminars i went to than i did through my entire major and um and it occurred to me that although the idea that there's such a thing as a learning style there's not any evidence for it in the sense that some people say they're, they're visual learners, they're kinesiological. That's apparently not, there's learning preferences, but not learning styles.
1: That's that's the key distinction.
0: Right. And so that just because you think you, you, you learn better uh, through visuals doesn't mean you actually do. It just means you prefer learning that way. Right. Right. But, but I, I think I might, I might have a learning style, which is I learn better from conversation with people. The, oh, I'm almost done, Nico.
1: Do you get this sound? Uh
0: no, not yet. Can I can I get back to you in just like a few minutes, three minutes? Good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he should be wearing a shirt. Um I thought I walked all, that all door. All you saw on the screen was an arm. So Oh, okay. 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 Anyway. <laughs> I, I appear to have learned better in a kind of conversational environment where like we're arguing with each other. I can imagine some people learning better in a competitive environment, right? If you've ever heard about those, um, I forgot what the, they're, they're, they're not, it's not history comes alive, but there are these games, a gamified approach to education where you like yeah, yeah. you role play as, as characters from, and um, reacting to the past. That's what it's called, reacting to the past. I can imagine some people learn better in a competitive environment like that or where they pretend to be other people. right? But I can also imagine that there might be some people who learn best in the kind of schooling system we have, right? Where if you try to do an unschooling thing, it would be a total disaster.
1: Yeah, yeah. They
0: wouldn't learn anything. Fine, right? They would just play video games and they wouldn't learn how to and they would yeah, be like yeah. useless. Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's a lot more to be figured out about like the, what kinds of people there are out there and what kinds of organizations work best for what kind of people. Because,
1: yeah. yeah. I think, I think I'm think I'm a, i I'm a pretty autonomous learner. When I think about my learning experiences, whether it was learning how to read philosophy without any background in it, which was I did on my own, or learning to play the drums, which I did mostly out of school, although I did marching band and stuff like that. I was pretty autonomous. I, I figured out ways on my own to kind of learn these things. Um, like with philosophy, I remember having to read passages many times before I could hit on sentences that I understood, and then I'd read the passage again with those sentences in mind and expand out my understanding. I don't know a lot of people uh, if a lot of people would have done that. Would have done that sort of like self-initiated uh, takes a lot of perseverance kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't, I don't know to Say that to like toot my own horn. I just don't know if a lot of people would have just kind of given up and been like, "Screw this! I'm gonna I'm gonna go and take a philosophy class." Yeah. That would have been the worst thing for me is to take a philosophy class. I really think that if I would have discovered philosophy in a philosophy class, I would know, I probably would not have taken very well to it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a good thing for all of us that you didn't take any philosophy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm not that kind of student.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we should probably go. My son, uh, he's starting to barge in here shirtlessly. And uh, it could cause a national scandal. So uh, I think we better end it here. So thanks very much, Kevin. It's good talk.